0: Hey, founders, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Stephen Johnson, CEO and founder of GoodJob, an AI recruiting platform that's raised $9 million in funding. Stephen, thanks for chatting with me today. Thanks, Brad. Glad to be here. To kick things off, can we just start with a quick summary of who you are and maybe a bit more about your background?
1: Yeah. So this is my third business, my second tech company. I left the world of investment banking after about seven years in 2000, built my first tech business which was in the, actually in the smart grid space. I sold that to a public company in 2012 and um, started a good job in 2019. And so um, I guess one could say that I'm a, a serial entrepreneur at this point, but I love building companies and, and creating them from zero. And that's sort of been the thing that's kept me going for the past 23 years. Take us back to when you were, I don't know, 18, 19, 20 years old. Did you have any idea that you would go on to become an entrepreneur at that point? Or where did that come from? You know, I've always, been involved in building things. And so even at a young age, not building buildings, but I enjoyed leading and doing things that other people weren't doing. And and so I kind of felt like I would always be either running a company or, you know, building a business or, you know, doing something that required, you know, innovation and leadership. But I didn't know what it would be. And certainly, you know, technology in those days, we're not what it is today by any means. So the idea of actually, you know, building an AI-based, you know, software company to predict if people will be successful in a job or not was completely foreign at that time. But I always felt like I would be involved in in creating something from the ground up. A few other questions we would like to ask. And the goal here is really just to better understand what makes you tick. First one, what founder do you admire the most? And what do you admire about them? Yeah. Great question and great thought. You know, I like a lot of founders. So, in picking one out, I would say is very difficult for me because there are things about what Bill Gates does, for example, that I love. There are things about Mark Cuban that, you know, I think are really cool. There are things just from, you know, founders that I worked with in the past that I saw how they didn't just grow at all costs. They built really good companies along the way and and I learned to admire some of those characteristics. So, Truthfully, I mean, I love to listen to you know podcasts, I love to learn from other people, but I really try to take from as many people as I possibly can. And I wouldn't say that like one particular person has influenced me the most in developing my style. Let's imagine that you could have anyone alive or dead on your personal advisory board. You can have three people. Who would those three different people be? Yeah. Well, Ronald Reagan would be one of them. So uh, I'll tell you that I've always admired his life and read a lot of books about him, studied his career. And what's interesting about Ronald Reagan in particular was the fact that he was so successful in multiple careers. And I like that. I'm a very diversified person. And so so, you know, Ronald Reagan for sure would be on there. I'm kind of a big fan of Mother Teresa. You know, I love the fact that, you know, she has such a servant heart and loved to serve people. And it's a characteristic that I think when you add that servanthood into what you're doing, it kind of gives you a different perspective. And she would be just, you know, an incredible person to get to know. You know, the other person, well, I'll say this, you know, for people that had built uh, really good companies, I think you can learn from them. So actually having a someone like a Bill Gates would be, phenomenal just because of you know what he did with Microsoft from the very beginning through what it is today and just so you know that experience would be phenomenal to learn from and so I'll include him in the in the list. What about books? And the way we like to frame this, we got this from
0: an author called Ryan Holiday or named Ryan Holiday. He calls them quick books. So a quick book is a book that like rocks you to your core, it really influences how you think about the world and how you approach life. Do any quick books come to mind for you?
1: Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, you know, Good to Great, my whole life is, was influenced most heavily by the book, Good to Great. And there are things in that book that I just have never forgotten in terms of leadership. Things like how important it is to have the right people in the right seat on the bus and how important it is to be brutally honest about your strengths and weaknesses and in particular your weaknesses. So that book, you know, sits at the very top for me. Other books that have been important to me, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, you know, it's been around for a really long time, but I think there's just so much goodness in the way Stephen Covey wrote that book. And I literally once a year go back and just kind of go back and look through my book where I've highlighted things. And no matter what you're doing in life, if you take those seven habits and, and put them to practice, you can find a way to be successful. So, so those are two books that have really influenced me and shaped me. I'm just now reading Good to Great for the second time. Um, I just started it like a week ago,
0: and the first time I read it was in like 2015 or something like That's that. And it's yep. just how you described. I have all these highlighter marks and all of these notes from back in 2015, and it's been fun to see just how my mindsets shifted a little bit. Where things in 2015 I highlighted, they were so important. Today they just seem like obvious and a, and a no brainer, or you know, not worthy of highlighting. So it's always
1: fun seeing just how things evolve. Absolutely, and you know, I've read a ton of books over my life. I actually most of my books I read while I'm on vacation. You know, when I'm in work mode candidly, you know, reading a, a book during my time where I'm, I'm busy building something or building new products or, you know, selling things or doing all of, It's just very hard to, you know, read as much as I would like to read. And so typically when I go on vacation is, is when I pick up a great book and I read and I try to reflect on it and learn from it. And man, I've read, I've read a bunch of good ones over the years, but those two really stick out for me. You mentioned that you listen to a lot of podcasts as well,
0: outside of category visionaries, the show you're on today, of course, what are some of your favorite podcasts?
1: Oh, well, shoot. I love listening to podcasts about like sports, military stories. I mean, it's a bizarre list. So I like anything that talks about people. Like there's a podcast I just picked up today. It's called The Season. I mean, it's just such a random podcast, but it has um, a sports agent on there. This series, I think is really pretty interesting who his first client was. And and so, man, I'm, I just, I mean, I like all kinds of podcasts. I actually listen to a lot of faith-based podcasts, inspirational podcasts, John Gordon, there's an author out there called John Gordon. And man, he's a friend of mine, but he's also just a great author. He's written some really good books, has a really good podcast. So those are ones I like. Nice. I'll have to check those out or some of those out. Let's switch gears now and let's talk about the
0: company. So I know in the intro there, I called you an AI recruiting platform, but that doesn't really do it justice for what you're doing. So tell us, what do you guys do?
1: Yeah. To understand what we do, I think it's important to understand what problem we're solving. And so here's the problem even when I was building my first company, which I built to be pretty big, you know, I sold it to a public company and we had, I think I sold it with 500 million in backlog and we started from zero. As I was building that company and I had all these resources, I still only hired people, the right person about half the time. And so it became very frustrating to me that, you know, the cost of a bad hire is just, is just killer on a business, right? It's not just like the actual physical cost, It's like the missed opportunity cost of putting somebody in place that didn't work out. And so in 2019, I started with a blank sheet of paper and said, how can we solve this hiring problem? Anyway, long story short, through my research, interviewing tons of people who have a lot of experience, what I learned was that what's missing in the hiring process is straight and behavioral information on the front end of that hiring process. So I built a software platform That helps companies predict if someone will be successful in a job role based on work traits and behaviors. And so in 10 minutes or less, we can increase the probability of hiring the right person from, you know, call it 50% a coin flip to 75 to 85%.
0: Who did you partner with to do this then? It sounds like you would have needed someone who's a developer and then you would have needed someone who,
1: I don't even know what that would be like a behavioral psychologist or what would that person be? What's that expertise? Absolutely. So we you know, and that's, you know, talking about creating. So I think when you create something, you know, you learn a lot, you get all the information you can get, and then you bring the best ideas and people to bear to help implement that idea. So I actually purchased the intellectual property and know-how of two, professors from Harvard and Stanford or spent time at Harvard and Stanford and also some other institutions. And over the past 35 years, they had built a consulting business, helping Fortune 500 companies hire people based on traits and behaviors. And so I partnered with them, bought their intellectual property and know-how. And then because of my tech experience and what I, the previous tech company I built, I brought in my super smart, you know, technology people, Got them all in a room together. Spent a you know several months uh, working on this, and we basically took that consulting business, which was very proprietary, very exclusive, cost a ton of money to use, and turned it into a software as a service business mm-hmm. that anyone in the world could use. And so that's how the idea got started. Where'd you learn to approach business like this? Cause that's not very common where they go out,
0: buy a service business with this idea of building it into a big tech platform and essentially democratizing access that was previously just for a small select group of companies for everyone.
1: So where'd you get that idea from to even do that in the first place? Well, Brett, the one most fundamental principle that you need to know about me is that I just believe that anything is possible. And so when I approach a problem, what I do is just, I don't think about how hard it is. I think about how to do it. And, you know, my first, I learned this in my first company. We started in 2000, we sold in 2012. And we raised a lot of money. The first five years of the business, we basically had the wrong, we had the right idea, but we had executed the wrong way. Without a great group of investors, I could have absolutely seen where an investor would say, we're not spending another dollar on this. We're going to shut it down." And You know because we we did the wrong idea and then from year five through year 12 you know we created 100 million dollars of equity value and so when i approach these problems i always think back on that experience and say you know you have to believe that what you're doing is possible to achieve and i just approach every problem that way and so when i looked at this hiring problem i looked at it like let's look at it how everybody does it and so it's just the way I approach the problem. And so I started interviewing companies. I probably interviewed 200 companies or more. And when I sat down with those CEOs and I just have a large CEO network because of my, this membership I have in YPO, Young Presidents Organization. And I went out to all these CEOs and I said, hey, tell me about your hiring process. Tell me about your people. How often do you make bad hires? And so when I started learning about this, what I realized was that everybody has the same problem. It's not unique. Everybody hires at 50%. And nobody wants to hire 50%. And so then I just started looking at it from, okay, well, if you have to just start to solve this problem, how do you do it? You know, what's missing? And that's just, I don't know, that's just kind of what I do. How did you build trust
0: early on so that customers would have faith in, because in the algorithm, right? I'm guessing this is really just an algorithm behind the scenes. Is that a fair way to characterize it?
1: Well, it is, but where it's really unique is it's based on data that's inside a company. So one of the biggest problems that we found There's a ton of assessment companies out there, okay? So the first thing we do is we identify the traits and behaviors that make people successful in a job at a very specific company. We do not mix data from company to company because culture matters. And if you use data for a role at one healthcare institution, for example, that may have a different culture than another healthcare institution, you're not really solving the problem with that specific company. So we use the only data we use to build our predictive behavior models are data that comes from the company's employees today. And what we do is we identify the behaviors of all the employees in the company. We weight those employees based on performance and fit, and then we build a predictive behavioral model based on what we know to be true at that company. and no one else was doing it that way. And that's you know what we do today. And so it's a very unique approach to building a behavioral model that can actually predict success at that company in that very specific role.
0: Can you expand on step one of that process then for identifying behavior? How do you go about identifying behavior? Let's say you are just now starting at a new organization, you're rolling this out, what does step
1: one look like? Yeah, we send out our nine minute assessment called the path assessment. It's free to everyone. You can go take it at pathassessment.com, but every company that has a buys our software has a proprietary link to their own path assessment because we don't mix data. And so the first step in the process is to send out that nine minute assessment to every employee in the company, or to us. Uh, so you can you don't have to do everybody at once. You can do a specific role if you wanted to. And they send it out. All we do is it goes with a very nice message that asks the employee to take the assessment so we can figure out what makes them special and unique. They take the assessment. And then once we have that trade behavioral information in the company library, we can now use that data to make better decisions about who we hire, including building predictive data models, identifying people who are in the wrong seat on the bus, the wrong role, comparing how employees. So instead of losing people who maybe aren't performing well, we can literally take the entire trade behavioral database, compare it to other jobs in the company and tell someone tell the company whether or not employee A would be a better fit for a job in a different position than they're currently in today. And we do all this in one minute. What's the ICP of someone who's using this
0: today or who's that like ideal customer that you want 100X more of?
1: Companies that have a lot of employees in a specific role for now. So enterprise companies, so 2,500 employees and greater. And the reason why I say, and even though we have smaller companies with 500 employees, 1,000 employees, and it works. It's just like anything. The more people you have in a role, you can build a more accurate behavioral model. And so over time, what will happen is we will be able to use the data that we create with companies for the smaller businesses. So like take my business, you know, we don't have a ton of employees. So it's really hard for me to use my own technology to predict success in a role like a sales role, because I only have two or three salespeople today, right? Well, I need about, you know twenty to build an accurate behavior model, 10 to 20 to 30, you know, something in that range, maybe 100. And so the more people you have, the better model you can build. And so right now, our focus is on the bigger companies, just because we like to use a lot of employees to build behavior models. But ultimately, we have a vision to serve everyone with the technology, including the smaller companies. And if they don't know who to hire, we can give them some anonymous data that says, hey, this may not be a good culture fit for you, but
0: Can you tell us about the first paying enterprise customers that you landed? That's obviously something that all startups struggle with in the early days. So take us back to those first couple of enterprise deals. How'd you pull it off?
1: Yeah, so we had, we were very fortunate. We had two really, really big deals before we even had a commercial product. And so in the very early stages, a very large healthcare system in Mississippi actually was having a, a real hard time with retention. And so they were, they partnered with us and became kind of a partner customer. And we learned a lot, you know, it wasn't perfect for us to be just totally keen. And I think every you know startup company or founder understands that, that you're not gonna do it all right on the front end of the process. But they stayed with us for a good year, helped us refine the product, fit into an enterprise space. It's the largest rural healthcare company in America. And that was just a great relationship for us. They actually are not a client anymore, but it's not because of our product. They actually went through some, you know, very tough financial times. And so they quit hiring people for a long time. And so my hope is that we'll get them back on the platform here as they come out of their restructuring that they just finished. Our second largest customer, though, we did a deal with the state of Mississippi, and it was an early deal that allowed us to where the state actually funded 10 companies in the state of Mississippi to participate in a pilot program with our company. And many of those companies are still our clients today, and they were big companies like Continental Tire, Nissan, Ergon, so the state helped us do that. Now, why would the state do that? Well, here's the problem we were solving for the state of Mississippi. Think about an industry or a state where you have an industry like the furniture industry that goes completely dead, and you have all these skilled workers that were working in furniture. Well, there is no furniture jobs anymore. So they have all these skills, but the opportunities are in companies where skills don't matter, behaviors do, and they'll train you to the skills you need. Does that make sense? So like you, if you have an unlimited training budget and you know somebody's wired for success in a job, you can take a furniture worker and go to a technology firm or to an automotive manufacturer to a different industry and say, hey, no, I have the right behaviors to be successful in this job. And so we were helping The state of Mississippi built a plan to transform the workforce and to help people in Mississippi find better jobs with different types of companies. And so so the very, very early on version 1.0, we picked up, you know, two really large enterprise accounts that really helped fund our growth, gave us uh, good input from a real life customer experience and really helped us build the product that exists today.
0: That must have given you a lot of credibility as well, right? When you go to these organizations or these enterprise organizations and you're trying to sell them, being able to say that you were able to service a
1: state, that has to be pretty compelling. 100%. It was very, like I said, I can't really emphasize enough how important that early sale was. And by the way, not every, it's very hard to do that early on in the life cycle of a, a company. It doesn't always work that way, right? I mean, sometimes you get one customer, then it takes a long time to get two. We actually you know, picked up 10 to 15 customers out of the gate when our product was ready to go to to market. And it was the early version of our product. It's gotten a lot better since even that initial version, but those are very important relationships.
0: You mentioned Mississippi there. I know you're based out of Alabama. What are some of the benefits that you've seen from not being in Silicon Valley or New York City or London, you these kind of major startup hubs?
1: It's interesting. First of all, you know, I love all those cities. So I'm a big fan of all kind of entrepreneurial environments. And But I think being in the South is pretty unique. It has some advantages and it has some disadvantages. You know, from an advantage standpoint, I think people are willing to help you if you need help, right? I mean, there is it's not as competitive. There's not as many people asking other people to do things. There's just not as many startups in the South as there are in some of these other markets. And so you're able to get some corporate support maybe that you may not get if you were in a in a different market. You know, on the flip side of that, I think it's harder to grow a business in a rural market. And I grew my first company in Mississippi and this is my second one and it's in Alabama, just because you don't have the capital resources, you don't have these innovation centers, even though, you know, like the city of Birmingham where I live today, they're making a really big push and effort to serve the entrepreneurial community and the founder community. And I've seen the same thing in Mississippi. Atlanta obviously has a, a really big tech push. And so I actually think it's becoming less hard to build a business in a non-traditional tech environment, which I think is good for everybody. And so it's just kind of what I've always done. And so it's it's really all I know. Have you ever had moments where you've thought, okay,
0: it's, it's time to pack up the bags and move to Silicon Valley? Or have you always viewed it as, yeah, there's pros and
1: cons, but the pros outweigh the the negatives here? Well, let me say this, in my first company, I ended up opening an office in San Jose because I felt like I needed to hire so many developers that it just made sense to have a presence out there. And actually, most of my larger customers were in California, so I wanted to have a presence to be close to them. In this particular business, because I took it's really a national product and you know, hopefully a global product, we're already talking to companies in Mexico and Brazil and, and across the pond and, and Europe. So I see this kind of a global business I don't think they really care if you're in Silicon Valley or if you're in Birmingham, Alabama. They just want to know that the product works and it does what it says it it's going to do. And when I built this business, the truth is I built it, I started before COVID hit and I made it a requirement on myself that I was not going to limit the talent that I would hire to be in present in an office in Birmingham. And so I actually started this business remote with the mindset that I'm going to, based on my experience from my first company, I'm going to be able to hire the best people in the world to work on this product. And I'm going to build the company that way from the beginning. And it just, it turned out that the whole world turned upside down and went remote, you know, about a year later. So a little fortuitous on my part. You predicted it. You knew what's happening. No, I didn't. I, <laughs> I didn't But anyway, you know, I actually miss being in an office. I think there's a lot of benefits of working with people and, you know, being in the same environment every day or, you know, every other day, it's, it's kind of the new way of working. I'm still getting used to because I I love just the collaboration time you could have with your, your leadership team, with your engineers, with your customer service people, with your salespeople. I just, I really do miss that, but you know, we're just in a different day now than we used to be. When it comes to your
0: market category, how do you think about the market category? Is it talent assessments or what would be like
1: the most relevant market category or market categories that you're in? It's really the human, I call it the human capital space Mm. because there are applications of our product that fit for just hiring the right people. There are applications of our product that fit that, hey, I don't want to hire anybody. I just want to, I want to learn more about my current workforce and make sure people are in the right seat and and use this product to um, identify potential strengths and weaknesses in our company and, and solve a diversity problem or whatever it might be. So I call it the whole human capital management space because we use an assessment tool. There have been times where people kind of tried to put us in an assessment bucket, but that's not really what we do. I mean, we use assessment data, but the real magic is in how we build a predictive model for success. So I think of the entire human capital management, workforce space as our uh, target market. What's the growth look like today? Are there any numbers that you can share? No, I don't, you know, I don't share our numbers publicly. What I will tell you is it's been an up and down ride in our first you know, 40 years. We've had some months where we've done super well. It's a recurring revenue model. So, but I will say the economy, I think the economy is pretty tough right now in general. I've seen with our enterprise clients, I've had a lot of them tell me that they are not spending any more money for the rest of this year. And so while we had some pretty aggressive growth goals this year, we're probably not going to hit them, just being totally candid about it. That's okay. That happens in life. I think 2024, I'm optimistic about 2024 that the spending is going to open up, but it's not been a straight line up. I will tell you that. So we've had some success. We kind of hit a slow growth Time period just because of the market we're trying to serve and the sell cycle, just the sell cycle in the human capital space and enterprise clients is super long. And so um, I'm looking for ways to try to accelerate our growth right now. And I'm looking at strategic partnerships. I'm looking at varied relationships because we have a really, really good product that can interface to any application that's out there today. And so I'm really just, you know, trying to find new ways to accelerate our growth without necessarily going out and hire, you know, 20 or 30 salespeople. Yeah, I think 90% of tech
0: companies have experienced something similar in 2023. So appreciate your honesty there and and being candid there about the the challenges with, with growth like I said, I, I talk with a lot of companies, and everyone's struggling with this right now. This has been an awful year for everyone, or it's been a very yeah. difficult year for everyone. And uh, yeah, I think it's important to uh, to call that out. And I appreciate you doing that. Yeah, I want to switch gears here and, and talk a little bit about fundraising. So, as I mentioned there in the intro, nine million raised to
1: date. What have you learned about fundraising throughout this journey and in your previous journey as well? Well. I've raised a lot of capital in my life. I think I've raised $120 of pure venture dollars that have gone into venture-backed companies in my career. That's not including kind of what I call private equity money kind of earlier in my, my stage. But, you know, that's a lot of venture money. Venture's hard and it's an evolving market. And I think right now, the one thing I've learned or been confirmed in this process is it always takes more money and takes more time than you think. So so raise more money than you think you need and um, try to extend your you know, burn and your runway as, as long as possible. And so those fundamentals really haven't changed. And so it's the same for this business as it is in others. I do think the venture market, it's much like the enterprise market. I think it's a very tough market right now in general. I think people are being very, very selective how they deploy their capital. My hope is in 2024, it opens up a little more than it is today. But You know, my goal is to, you know, take the capital that we've been given and do the best we can to, you know, honor that investment and to invest in good things and to try not to make mistakes with it. But I was talking to a group not too long ago and I made the, I think I had read an article that the average tech company pivots around seven or eight times before they find success. And that kind of blew me away a little bit right? You know, because you think about it, we've probably made two really hard pivots so far. And I feel like we're at a place where we're ready to experience, you know, success. But I may find out in 12 to 18 months that we need to pivot again, you know, but right now I feel pretty good about where we're headed. So can you tell us about one of those pivots? Yeah. So when I first launched the company, my vision was that we would have a database of people with trade behavioral information, And so think about that Mississippi example where you've got a whole group of people that if they'll take your nine minute assessment, you'll know what, how they're wired and what type of work situations that they can be successful in. And then if you have a whole group of companies out there, then you can create this marketplace where you can match people that would normally not get matched for a particular job, not on skills, but purely on behaviors. And so it was a marketplace effect where we were serving the, both the, what I call the candidate looking for a job, as well as the company that was hiring. And that was my original vision for the business. And last summer, as I started working with more and more enterprise clients, I found that they didn't like to share their data. They didn't like their people being able to, you know, match for other jobs. And it just became very complex to serve both the candidate and the company. And so I decided that we would just focus on serving companies and I dropped the candidate part of it. What's funny is we still are really serving the candidate. We're just doing it through the lens of a company. Mm, makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So I call, that, I call that candidate business a Super Bowl business. And unfortunately, I don't have enough capital to make Super Bowl commercials. <laughs> so what does that mean? It just needs wide, massive exposure for it to work? That's right. Yeah. You just got to spend a ton of money to make that model work. And you know, right now we can be very selective and targeted, I should say, toward that ideal customer profile. And we can, you know, focus on the companies that we think can benefit the most from our product. And it's just, I think focus, when you find something that works, having focus as a founder and as a young company is just really important. And so I have to check myself sometimes because I see a lot of things and I want to be a lot of things, to a lot of people, but I don't necessarily think that's the recipe for success early in the life of a company. I think having focus, understanding who that customer profile is, and then doing everything you can to be successful with that customer profile is really important.
0: How do you think about balancing those two kind of conflicting ideas? Because I hear this all the time. Yeah. On one hand, people will say you need to focus. It's all about focus and just digging in and and grinding it out. And then on the other hand, you need to know when to pivot and be adaptable and you're ready for change. So it seems like two very (laughs) conflicting things. It's like, okay, so what do I have to do? Do I need to focus or do, do I need to be prepared to pivot? And, um, I've always found that very difficult in my own mind. And I think a lot of founders
1: struggle with that as well. Well, it is conflicting, but it's also complimentary in some ways. So let me dial that up for you. So I think by focusing, you can really determine if your idea is a good one or not faster than you can by not focusing. And when you start thinking about how much money you're spending and your burn rate and all those things, it just takes longer to figure out when you need to make a pivot if you're real broad. And so by focusing, you can get to the answer pretty quickly. So that's how I look at it. And I'm with you though. Listen, I love, I think when you start something, you shouldn't necessarily limit. So it's a little bit, I'm going to contradict myself a little bit, or it may be perceived I'm contradicting myself, but I'm not. When you start something, I like to look at it broadly. And then when you find something where you actually may have a a win or you may, you know, you hit a nerve with a company or something, then I like to really focus on that. But I may not have started there in the beginning. Does that, Hopefully that makes sense to you. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And something
0: else that you had said earlier in the interview that I really liked as well is it sounds like you started off at the problem level, right? You said, here is a problem that exists in all of these companies and all of these organizations, and then you built around that. Do I have that right? Correct. I feel like many companies don't do that, especially, you know, out here where I am in, in Silicon Valley. A lot of companies that even I speak to, they couldn't articulate the problem that they solve, but they could tell you all about their product, the features, the capabilities, but if you asked them just the simple question, what problem does this solve? You know, they would kind of just stutter and and BS their way through it. So I really like that approach of starting
1: first with the problem and then building from there. I think it's critical for success. And sometimes the problems are easy to understand. Sometimes the problems aren't easy to understand. In my first company, it was a very, very complex problem that we were solving. And truthfully most people didn't get it candidly. The industry leaders, the people that You know, knew all the stuff, the research analysts, nobody really got it. And then all of a sudden, when the market changed, which was caused by some government legislation, then everybody got it and flipped. In our case, the problem is we all hire right 50% of the time. And what's funny is I didn't make that up. SHRM, the Society of Human Resource Management, which is a partner of mine, which was one of the great things that happened to me in 2023, you know, that's a statistic that they produce. And so I didn't make the problem up. The problem is well known. It's just there aren't a lot of people addressing the problem. And truthfully, what I learned as I did my research is most people had gotten comfortable with the problem. And so all the technology that had been developed out there was built to help make the problem easier to deal with. And my approach was like, why don't we just solve the problem? Love it. Steven,
0: we are up on time, so we're going to have to wrap. I do want to ask you just one final question here. Can you tell us about the vision? So maybe paint a picture for us three to five years into the future. What is that big picture
1: vision? My big picture vision is very simple. I want every company in the world to use trait and behavioral information before they make a hire of someone. And here's the reason why. When you hire somebody, not just on skills, but on traits and behaviors, What you're doing is you're putting a person in a position that they're wired for success. And when you put a person in a position where you know they can be successful, they are going to be a happier person. They're going to be a better contributor to your workforce. They're going to be a better husband, father, friend, community service person. They're going to have a better life because they work in an environment where they know they were made for success. It's not going to work out every time but when we don't use trait and behavior information, we're guessing. And so my vision is pretty simple. Make it incredibly easy for every company to determine if someone is wired for success in a job or not. Amazing. I love the vision.
0: Stephen, we are up on time. We'll have to wrap. Before we do, if there's any founders listening in
1: that want to follow along with your journey as you build and execute on this vision, where should they go? First of all, you can take our nine minute assessment tool and learn something about yourself on our website at GoodJob.io, or you can go to PathAssessment.com. And then, you know, we have all the social media tools out there for a Good Job, but also for me. And you know, I'm on LinkedIn. If anybody wants to connect with me on LinkedIn, Stephen Johnston, ping me, and I'll I'll be sure and accept the request and love to chat with you. Amazing!
0: Thank you so much for taking the time to chat. Really appreciate it, and really enjoyed this conversation. Thanks, Brett.